0: Everything Old is New Again, America's entertainment pop culture talk show. It may well possess a rudimentary intelligence. I'm trying to think, but nothing happens. Tell the great disturbance in the force. Hello, I'm Mr. Ray. Come on, mark like a dog for me. me,
1: me. Where's the goodies? <laughs> Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. I bet you wouldn't have done anything like this if mom and dad were here. You
0: filthy criminal! Excuse me while I whip this out. Go ahead. Make my day. Here are your hosts, Douglas Viviani and... David Cohen. Since the dawn of civilization, mankind has credited its origins to gods and other visitors from the stars. What if it were true? Did extraterrestrial beings really help to shape our history? We're here with Emmy Award winner Kevin Burns, among many other shows. He's the executive producer of The New Lost in Space on Netflix, Ancient Aliens, which has been on for quite some time, 13 seasons, 147 episodes plus, and The Curse of Oak Island, all currently on television. Thank you again for being here, Kevin. We're having a great time with Kevin Burns. Uh, Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you guys. Excellent. Uh, as you may know, as a, as a big fan of everything old is new again, we uh, devote a number of our shows a year to the topic uh, that we're kind of fascinated with, which is uh, ancient aliens and, and UFOs and so forth. Um, uh, and and it's apparently, uh, certainly you've got some interest in that. As as this show that uh, you're executive producer of Ancient Aliens for 13 seasons, uh, you've got to be certainly open-minded, I guess, to the possibility of what is presented. Presented on these episodes, uh, we're, we're, what inspired you to get involved with a, a show that could be in some ways uh, controversial as uh, ancient aliens? Well,
2: I got to do a lot of projects with Lucasfilm, believe it or not. Um, they contacted me uh, back in uh, I think 1994 uh, to do uh, what became kind of, I guess the definitive documentary on the making of the original trilogy which we called Star Wars Empire of Dreams. And uh, I did that directly with Lucasfilm, and it led to a wonderful relationship with them. And we did Star Wars Tech and Star Wars Creatures and Star Wars The Legacy Revealed. And then when they were doing Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, they asked if I would do a documentary about Indiana Jones. But again, these were not making of documentaries so much as something that would, air on television that would kind of thematically tie into it. So um, I was always intrigued with archaeology. I mean, I'm a, I'm a history bug. I, you know, I, God bless her. My mother used to say I was like a dog who stopped at every tree, meaning I have a lot of different interests. And so I'm a curious person. So I and I was kind of like I started with the premise of why do archaeologists do what they do? Why do we dig? and my answer to that is we're we're a species with collective amnesia we don't know really where we come from we don't know how long we've been here and we are ultimately looking for god or looking for proof of god or evidence that there is something bigger than ourselves so we approached this indiana jones that. We, we called it indiana jones and the ultimate quest and it fit very perfectly with the indiana jones films because All of the films previous to Crystal Skull were about the Ark of the Covenant or the Shakira Stones from India or the Holy Grail. And then, of course, Lucas wouldn't share with me what Crystal Skull was about. And I said, oh, my God, you could tell from the poster, it's it's Eric Von Daniken. It's Chariots of the Gods. And, of course, everybody who works for me, who's under 30, or actually under 35, was like, What's *Chariots of the Gods*? Who's there at Fondanigan? And I said, "Trust me, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg know exactly where *Fondanica* is." Right. And uh, and I remembered the book, and I remembered the documentary feature that came out in the early '70s, *Sun Classic Pictures Presents*. And um, and so I, I, and then the people from Lucasfilm were freaked out when they saw our documentary because they said how did you get a hold of the movie? I said I didn't I just knew what it was about from the poster and uh, uh, well anyway that led to a discussion with the History Channel well, I told them this same story and they said well we would love to do an update of Chariots of the Gods like it was the 40th anniversary at the time this was 10 years ago, it's the 50th anniversary year now Um and uh So I found out that Eric Von Daniken was alive and well and living in Switzerland, and we did a show, which I thought was going to be a two-hour show, just an update on Chariots of the Gods, which we called Ancient Aliens. And it was really meant to be just a two-hour special. And it was so successful, the network came back to me and said, would you do five more two-hour shows? And I said, well, how are you going to air them? And they said, well, once a week. I said, no one's going to watch a show two hours once a week. It's, it, it's unheard of. And they said, why, you don't want to do it? I said, well, of course I'll do it. But, so I had to really figure out how to make a two-hour show, five, five two-hour shows work. And I came up with the idea of five rhetorical questions, which are, if you notice, at the beginning of every episode, which is who were they, where did they come from, what did they leave behind, where did they go, will they return? and um and that formed the basis for each of the two shows and i thought well that's it that's we did it uh we pulled it off and they were very well received and they came back and said would you do 10 more one-hour shows And i said guys i'm out of pyramids i i i i i i I, I, I picked every nazca line clean and they said why you don't want to do it i said well of course i'll do it (laughs) So, so 140 episodes later and I have to say, you know, and I approach the show not as an ancient astronaut theorist. I mean, the, the narrator uh, very much is, because uh, I, I wrote virtually every show in the first few years or co-wrote it or rewrote it. I still, in fact, even today I'm doing a polish of an upcoming episode. And uh, um, But I, I am effectively the voice of the narrator, which is a questioner. The narrator asks questions, and I take a certain amount of pride in that the narrator will never put a period at the end of a sentence if it isn't a fact. Right. Now, we're open-minded enough to let the theorists say what they want to say, meaning, and I don't necessarily agree with everything the theorists say, but what I think is the beauty of the show, uh, and it's extraordinary because I don't see any other network that would have the courage to let us do the show this way. Because most shows would have, like, well, you have to have a skeptic on. You have to have somebody come on after the theorist and say it's not true, or there's no evidence. And I'm like, would you do the nativity um, uh, of Jesus and have somebody come on and say it's not true? Right. Uh, no, you wouldn't. And I'm not comparing the two things, uh, and I'm not trying to take ancient aliens and make it a religion, but the point is, it's an open-minded approach to the topic because I do take the position that science and archaeology do not have all the answers, um, and religion doesn't have all the answers either. But they're both trying to answer the same questions, which is who are we? Where are where who made us? Where where did we come from? What is our purpose here in life? And I I think science tries to answer those questions. I think. Religion tries to answer those questions, and Ancient Aliens, I think, offers not another answer, but a bridge between science and archaeology and religion. Um, It is not, in my opinion, an anti-religious show. It's not an anti-science show. What it is is a show that allows people to ask questions, and that is far too rare on today's television.
0: Exactly, and it is unique in that way, and it... it if you go in with an open mind, you're going to come out of these episodes with a, a, at least, at least a question mark uh, uh, in your mind as to wait a minute. That, what, gee, that maybe there were aliens in the West uh, back in, in the day, or because you know, there no, are I mean, it's, it's, yeah.
2: It is theoretically possible. And, and, and I approach the show where there might be 10 different things offered as a theory in an episode. And I may think, personally, I may think that seven of them are, like, way too far-fetched or very unlikely, but there's always three or four, I have to say, that pick my brain in a way that even me, who makes the show, will go, I can't necessarily say that's not true, or I can't dismiss that out of hand. In other words, you know, and there's a lot of things you realize as you dig into the research. Like, for example, you know, a lot of people think the pyramids of Egypt were tombs or temples. They weren't, and there's absolutely no evidence proving that that's true. They may also be much older than conventional archaeology thinks they are, and when you see them on the inside, that there are no hieroglyphs, there are no burial chambers, there were no mummies in them, so then it leaves you with the question of, well, how old are they, and what were they for? Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that aliens built them or inspired their creation, but there's. So many questions that science and archaeology cannot answer um, that the ancient astronaut theorists offer an intriguing, if not, you know, very audacious, counter idea of what our history really could be.
0: Oh, excuse me, we're going to have to break right here for a hard break for a commercial. We'll be right back with Kevin Burns executive producer of *Cursive*, Oak Island, Lost in Space, and Ancient Aliens. we we'll be right back. Everything old is new again. You're listening to Everything Old is New Again, America's entertainment pop culture talk show with Douglas Viviani and David Cohen. And we're back with the executive producer of Ancient Aliens, and we're discussing the possibility of aliens right here, right now.
2: And given the fact that we're about to go to Mars and colonize another planet and leave things behind and make our mark on a body in the universe as we already have on the Moon, who are we to say that it's
0: impossible? Right. And these these show a show like this and these ideas do nothing if you know, nothing else. If nothing else, add color to our lives to to present these. Uh, other ideas to open our mind to, like you say, the, you walk out of any show and there's something that's going to nag at you a little bit and say, "Well, let me, let me look into that a little bit more." And, and you may do your own research, or or you'll you'll uh, you know believe Giorgio uh, himself, uh, uh, the gentleman that you see sometimes that the, the people might recognize with the, the the odd hairstyle and that's on yeah, show. the show, <laughs> the
2: the electrified hairdo.
0: Right. Um, <laughs> but you know yeah. you, you, they, they make it come alive for you. Well,
2: yeah, and you know, and it's weird. I mean, I, I, say, my my life has expanded in many ways, but it kind of returns to the same thing. I mean, we've done episodes of ancient aliens, of aliens and vikings, and I'm thinking, God, there was a Lost in Space with viking aliens. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I mean, you could almost look at every episode of Lost in Space and say, gosh, there's an ancient aliens episode that refers right back to this. Um, Whether it's, you know, interdimensions or or folklore or... uh, Uh, You know, uh, the the parallels in terms of mythology and archaeology and uh, and ancient astronaut theory are, are pretty incredible.
0: Right and, and talk about. You spoke previously a little bit about the narrator being basically your voice. You've got Robert Clotworthy doing Ancient Aliens narration as well as The Curse of Oak Island, which we could uh, turn pivot a little bit here too for a moment. And uh, I guess the first question is: uh, obviously, he does a great job. It was uh, uh, what was the consideration with having him do both of those?
2: Well, he did. He did our first Star Wars test. He did Star Wars Empire of Dreams, and he became. For me, kind of the perfect voice for Lucasfilm. He did all of our Lucasfilm docs, and so when we did Ancient Aliens, we kind of previewed other voices, and and I said, you know, Robert has a gift. Uh, he's really a wonderful, wonderful guy to work with. He's an actor. Uh, he's been in a lot of movies, but Robert is a very, very, very nice man. And uh, but he has the the a quality to make the absurd sound sane. In other words, when he when he speaks, you listen. And he can take even the most audacious concept and make it plausible um, by the way he presents it. Right. And uh, so, I, so, you know, in fact, uh, when we started with The Curse of Oak Island, I, there was really nobody else I wanted. And he's also the voice of another show we do called The Curse of Civil War Gold, right. which is about to go into its second season on History Channel. So, you know, Robert is my voice of sanity. But that doesn't necessarily mean... But I say he speaks kind of for me, because I wouldn't accuse myself of being
0: sane. <laughs> well, well we'll uh we'll join we'll go down the uh, the, the same path as you do and and uh, and call us uh, you know the sanity is is a subjective term right but as far as I'm concerned if you look at the coast of Oak, uh, of Oak Island which is basically a treasure hunt in Canada's Oak Islands with the brothers Lagina's um and some people will say Laginas but uh
2: Lagina the Laginas Laginas. it's
0: it's Rick and Marty Lagina. Well, uh, you yeah. a yeah where did you find them and uh, certainly i think i think rick is doing the civil war show as well right from uh springboarding from there
2: well marty marty, marty. is and and that's because marty was the one who brought the idea to us okay and marty found the guy and uh and it was just a fluke somebody met with marty on a an airplane and said do you know about this fellow who's looking for uh Uh, you know, the Confederate treasury at the bottom of Lake Michigan. And Marty is, you know, Marty and his family are very, very kind of Michigan people, first and foremost. And, and, uh, and, uh, And so Marty recommended it to us. He said, do you know about this fella? So I said, well, if we do anything with this, Marty, I would love to have you be part of it with us because you were the one who first thought it was a good idea. And, you know, the secret of any good show is not only a good idea, and good execution, but to me, but it's about they're about people. I mean, a good show is always about people. Lost in Space succeeds because you like the people. The Munsters succeeded because you liked the family. You 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 loved them. And I think if you find characters who you want to spend an hour with, and you're and you care about what happens to them, that's the key to a good television show. It's not just storytelling. It's also about uh, you know, an emotional connection that the audience needs to have with somebody they're going to watch every week. The key to Oak Island, I mean, you asked me how I found mm-hmm. them, and, I, you know, uh, was, you know, I had heard about Oak Island and the mystery of Oak Island from a programming director at the History Channel, you know, about 10 years ago. And at the time, we were told, well, it's a very interesting story. But the island is controlled by a couple of guys who hate each other, and there's no way you're going to be able to get the the film done, or you're you're not going to be able to get access to the island. And we did Ancient Aliens, and in that first group of five two-hour shows, we did a segment, if you remember, on Oak Island. And we'd never been to the island. We didn't shoot anything on the island, but we did it about a legend about the Ark of the Covenant, being perhaps one of the treasures that could be there and uh and in the course of it i was reminded of it i said you know i'm really going to try even if these guys are hard to deal with i'm going to try and then i found out that there were two new partners that had come in since i first heard about the island there were these two uh brothers from the upper peninsula of michigan rick and marty lagina who were kind of 50 percent stakeholders in the island and who had uh, come into it. And I literally went with a guy that I work with, Joe Lassard. We drove five and a half hours. We flew to Detroit from California. We drove five and a half hours to Traverse City. And I had dinner with Marty and Rick, and Craig Tester and Alan, uh, their partner. And uh, we had dinner. And at the dinner, I found out why Rick and Marty, particularly Rick, Uh, were enamored with Oak Island, and it was, again, it had to do with what I tend to be very, very open to, being the kid who loved the Munsters and Lost in Space of Batman. Rick was a 10-year-old boy, 11-year-old boy, actually, who read the Reader's Digest, the 1965 Reader's Digest, Um, and that story about Oak Island uh, in the Reader's Digest made him a total fan, and all his life... He read about it, he studied about it, he, you know, he, he brought all of his family members, you know, he used to bore them at holidays and Thanksgiving about Oak Island. And then finally, his younger brother, Marty, who remembered, you know, his brother's love of it, um, Marty became a very, very successful and very wealthy uh, uh, energy company executive. And he finds out there's an island, 50% ownership of Oak Island was for sale, and he went to his brother and said, how'd you like to buy Oak Island? <laughs> and, uh, and when I heard that story at dinner, Joe and I uh, looked at each other and I was like, that's it. That's it. And they really did not want to be on television. They really did not want to be, you know, they, they just didn't want to do it. And I said, I will know how to tell your story better than anybody else. And they said, why? I said, because I was a 10-year-old boy who loved a show called Lost in Space. And I have, and I now control the rights to it. And I know what it means to touch your childhood dream. And I said, and I, that's the point of view I will take in telling this story, you know, because they were afraid that I was going to do what other reality shows do, which I don't do, which is to make them look bad or make them look like Hicks or Hillbillies, which of course they were not. Right. But they were afraid I was going to do something that would mock them. Or, or make them look foolish for looking for this, you know, 223-year-old treasure. And I said, no, on the contrary. Um, I respond to the dream you have. This, to me, is Lord of the Rings. This this is a, or the Fellowship of the Dig, which which Rick, you know, used that phrase. And this is Goonies. This is Fellowship of the Rings. And that was what convinced them to trust us, to do the show the way we do it. And it is the most successful show on the History Channel and the number one show on cable on Tuesday nights when it runs. I mean, it's actually the number one reality show of the week, and it has been for the last four years. So, um, But I again, I attribute it not only to the fact that we work really hard. I have a wonderful, wonderful team of producers on the island. We spend six months a year up there filming. It's very challenging to make the show work, but... I have a great cast of characters. I mean, Marty, Rick, Greg, Dave Blankenship, Dan, his father. Um, you know, Dan's 95 years old. He's got to be the oldest TV star. You know, I used to think Hugh Hefner was the oldest TV star. <laughs> now I have Dan Blankenship. Right. So, so um, but that's why the show works is people love the characters.
0: And it works also um, in the light of now we know those characters. We know some characters, certainly the the the, 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 the person, people that are introducing the topics and talking about the topics on ancient aliens. So now it seems like I'm hearing, based on an artifact that was found uh, on Oak Island, that there may be a crossover episode between Ancient Aliens and, and Curse of Oak Island. Is that possible?
2: Um, not Likely. Um, I mean, there are a lot of objects on uh, Oak Island that are extraordinary. Um, I wouldn't say that they were extraterrestrial um, or, or connected in any way to ancient astronaut theory. Although, I will say this there are a lot of uh, ancient astronaut theorists who believe that um, they have a key to solving the mystery based on a lot of astrological information and things. And there are some people from uh, Ancient Aliens, actually uh, Dr. Travis Taylor, who's been a a recent guest on Ancient Aliens, who's got two PhDs and he's a NASA uh, astrophysicist. I mean, he's a very, very smart guy. He was in another show we did called The Tesla Files. And we sent him up there because he has a very ingenious idea of what might have been buried there and where it might have been buried so there's, there's some crossover but not necessarily because of something that has been
0: found all right understood we'll we'll uh keep uh, an eye out on both of these shows and be back right in a few moments with kevin burns to finish off our time talk about uh, some more pop culture entertainment and uh, enjoy uh, our time together we'll be back right after this and everything old is new again This is Everything Old is New Again, America's entertainment pop culture talk show with Douglas Viviani and David Cohen. Welcome to Everything Old is New Again with Douglas Viviani, David Cohen. David, just for the heck of a uh, trivia question, do you recognize that theme song? Yes, I do. From the 60s, where do you recognize it from? I believe that's uh, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Exactly, another great... Uh, with Richard Bracehart and uh, David Hennessy. we're going to get back to that in a few moments right now. We are uh, enjoying our time with Emmy Award winner, executive producer, director, writer of many, many shows, including but not limited to The New Lost in Space, Ancient Aliens, and the curse of oak island mr kevin burns thank you again for spending so much time with us kevin oh no it's my pleasure thanks guys and does that uh, you must hear that theme song every so often in in your mind is that uh, you're you're associated with and and i think you said you have the rights to uh many if not all of the Irwin allen projects is that correct or properties
2: yeah, I mean, to the extent that Irwin had rights or, or shared in rights to the things that he created, uh, my partner John Jashney and I, we have a company called Synthesis Entertainment uh, that has been kind of in charge of not only developing these properties as remakes or feature films, but also all the licensing, all the merchandising. If if, you know the soundtrack albums, uh, we're about to do a 50th anniversary soundtrack album for Land of the Giants, by the way,
0: Mm, through La
2: La Land Records. Um, we did the uh 50th anniversary Lost in Space soundtrack uh collection, and so we, you know, I again I loved Irwin Allen's work, I felt that it was in danger of being either not so much forgotten but not. As respected as it should have been, uh, Irwin was quite an extraordinary character. Trying to make basically big screen movies on television with very, very, very challenging budgets, and succeeded far better than anyone else who'd ever tried before him. So, um, you know, there wouldn't be Star Trek if there wasn't Lost in Space. Um, we, we wouldn't we wouldn't have seen a lot of the science fiction on television that we enjoyed later because Irwin was the pioneer. Who proved it could be done when everybody thought it couldn't be done. And so um, we have a tremendous amount of respect
0: to him. Tell you, to it's, it, it, if you really know the breadth of the work of Irwin Allen and see the effect even to this day, I wonder, just throwing it out there off the top of my head, it seems like it might be a pretty good idea for a bio uh, pick uh, uh, down the line, no? Take a look well, behind the scenes of uh, what he did?
2: Very, very possibly. I mean, you know, again, we. Uh, we've got a book coming out, uh, Taylor White, who has a, 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 a store and a website called Creature Features. He's published a handful of books and uh, done a lot of stuff on uh, Star Trek and, and uh, The Outer Limits. And he approached me along with Jeff Baum uh, to do a book called The Fantasy Worlds of Owen Allen, which had always been a dream of ours, to do a big, big book. It's like a 550-page book because we have, again, as I mentioned earlier, access to Irwin's archives. With all the paintings and all the artwork and all the storyboards and all the letters, and uh, and so this promises to be an incredible, a uh, visual explosion. This book because mm-hmm. Irwin was so visual, and we have original concept art for how he originally envisioned the Jupiter two and the Sea View, and these amazing paintings and how he sold his shows, and um, and a lot of things came out that we you know I didn't quite know beforehand that I've known. A lot about Irwin and that he really invented the first celebrity panel show, the first celebrity radio show, uh, the first game show on television. Hmm. Um, you know, he started out as a a radio guy uh, who then became one of the early television personalities here in Los Angeles, and then and then became a, a producer for RKO, an agent. Um, he, um, We found love letters between him and Joan Crawford <laughs> from the 1940s, which was quite astounding. Um, and, then, uh, and then in the 1950s, he became more and more of a his own producer, doing uh, everything from, uh, you know, the, the sea around us and the, the animal world uh, to the big circus. And then, of course, in the early 60s, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Five weeks in a balloon, based on Jules Verne, uh, the uh, the Lost World, uh, based on H.G. Wells, and then uh, um, and then uh, and then parlayed that into television. So and then later, after Lost in Space, Time to the Land of the Giants, of the Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, he did the highest grossing film of 1972, which was The Poseidon Adventure. Sure. and then the highest grossing film of 1974, which was The Towering Inferno. So he, he was really an amazingly prolific and extraordinarily uh, gifted producer who created very indelible and very visual experiences
0: for audiences. And his vision and his projects are living on through uh, your work and participation in Lost in Space, Poseidon, uh, the movie in 2006, Time Tunnel, 2002. You did a, a you know a project with that. Question is, there's still out there the land of the giants, and, and I know you only have so much time uh, but to your day, but and voice at the bottom of the sea, Down, I guess there's always possibilities. Are there possibilities down the line that these may be reimagined at some point? yes uh
2: especially after the success of lost in space um uh, you know we we you know we always have an eye toward developing all of these properties uh some of them you know have different challenging rights issues i mean uh 20th century fox was Irwin's partner uh, on time tunnel of the giants and voyage and so uh you know the the question is do we develop them with fox which is now owned by disney uh, very recently Uh, In other words, will they become our partner? Will we do them independent of those studios? Uh, Legendary, um, uh, which was uh, housed at Warner Brothers, Legendary, uh, through John and I, purchased uh, Irwin's rights to these properties. Legendary now owns Lost Space and produces it for Netflix. And uh, John was for a while the president of Legendary and the chief creative officer and so, on the strength of that, we brought the properties in uh, with Sheila Allen's blessing and the blessing after she passed away of her, of her family and her estate. Um, and then we developed it with Legendary. So, so working with Legendary, I mean, you know, we're, we'll, John and I are kind of attached to these properties for the foreseeable future, but working with Legendary, possibly working with Fox or Disney. Uh, yes, I would say the possibility exists for all of these properties to come back.
0: And That's exciting. Back. And then there's, it sounds like that certainly we know that they're in good hands. Uh, I want to pivot a little bit too, back to Lost in Space on Netflix here. The first season ended with uh, quite a few questions and a, a point towards a certain direction where they're going to go. I know that you'll know, it, be limited, but is there anything you could tell us about either the tone or what uh, we can expect from season two with respect to Lost in Space on Netflix?
2: Well, what was great is when when John and I started working with Matt Sazama and Burke Sharpless, the writers of the of the of the, of, uh, the first two episodes and uh, and several episodes afterwards, um, they became kind of our creative partner. And then, of course, Zach Estern came in as the showrunner, and we form, I would say, the nucleus of where the creative direction of the show goes. And but Matt and Burke had a very ambitious. I would say, three- to five-year story, even when we were pitching the very first episode. And we didn't know it would be on Netflix. I mean, we pitched it to every network Mm -hmm. with an eye toward Netflix, but we went to CBS, we went to Fox, we went to NBC. Um, But Matt and Burke always had a very, very big vision. So, So season one kind of tells the story of how the family, along with Don West and Dr. Smith and the robot, kind of come together. Season two, I don't want to give anything away, but extends that and, and, um, and enriches that because now when you have, in a sense, your, your core group, your seven characters, uh, season two is about the struggle for those characters to stay together. Uh, and that, I think, is uh, a very exciting uh, way of approaching season two.
1: Hey, Kevin, you know, with the original Lost in Space TV show, you know, as you were watching all three seasons, you pretty much knew that nothing terrible was going to happen to any of the family members or any of the cast members. Every time they faced a new, you know, challenge, some evil entity or person, they were always going to come out on top. So now, you know, with today's serial tv shows you never know what's going to happen so my question is how do you guys work within that that context where, where, where you are sort of juxtaposing it against the old tv show where it was kind of predictable how do you how do you envision adding an element of surprise to this new enterprise
2: well i think you know i don't think there's any serious thought, I don't want to give anything away, but I don't think there's any serious thought to eliminating one of the core characters. I mean, you know, this, you know, one of the things that John and I were very strong about when we started this was, you know, look, they have to be Robinsons, they have to have a ship called the Jupiter 2, there has to be a robot, there has to be a chariot, and there has to be Will, Judy, Don, Penny, you know, John, Maureen, and Dr. Smith. I mean, you know, there are certain things that make it lost in space. And so it's, it's almost like Superman. You know, you have to have Lois Lane, you have to have Jimmy Olsen. Otherwise, it's not Superman.
0: And of course, without commercials, we are not. Everything old is new again on the radio and an existing radio show. So we'll be back right after this with Kevin Burns to talk all things pop culture, including Lost in Space. <laughs> You're listening to Everything Old is New Again, America's entertainment pop culture talk show with Douglas Viviani and David Cohen. And we're back with Kevin Burns talking all things the new Netflix show Lost in Space and wondering if we are going to be seeing a elimination of any of the characters we do see sometimes in television today.
2: So I don't think we're giving any thought to eliminating characters, but... Are these characters going to evolve? Are the characters at risk? Could they disappear for a while and come back? Could they evolve beyond where the original TV show took them? So I think that's the hope, is that they they will take surprising turns now that we've established them. We can see where they would have gone, maybe where, where Owen would have taken them had the show lasted longer.
0: Certainly the robot was a huge influence. Back in the day with me, I'd be in, in uh, school drawing pictures of the robot, and I can still draw them to this day down to the, the little power pack on the right side. So the question is, you did change a bit of the backstory uh, let's say to the robot and the character but it's a lot of the essential elements remain the same how did you take on again a second iconic character in the same television show uh, and tackle that to ensure that it was fresh and new as it is now
2: well again certain things we didn't want to change like the family and the dynamics of the robinsons i mean we knew it was going to be a family who loved each other You know, we didn't want the dysfunctional family. I think New Line, you know, they, I think one of the reasons why they didn't, it didn't work is the casting I didn't think was good. I mean, it wasn't right. It wasn't the right chemistry between those actors. And, you know, the kids were kind of repellent in some respects. So I think casting was a big part of this. But in terms of taking the other characters, what I would call the, you know, the orbiting characters, because you have the five Robinsons, but then you have Smith, you have Don West, and you have the robots and uh, who are the outsiders, effectively, who are looking to be part of a family, but they are the outsiders. Uh, The robot was a huge gamble. I would say that more than making Smith a female character, making the robot an alien robot was a huge gamble. But part of that was also done because the original Smith, Jonathan Harris, and the original robot were so indelible and so beloved that rather than try to stick to that, we took what I think was a bolder but more successful strategy of saying, let's not compare it. Let's go somewhere totally different. And so, and we also knew that there were gonna be other Earth colonists, and we didn't want all of them to have a robot. So the idea that the Robins, Robinsons bring a robot that's kind of assigned to them, if you extrapolated that, then all the Jupiter families would have a robot, and we didn't want that. So Matt and Burke came up with the idea that the robot, be an alien robot, and John and I were big, big, big fans of Iron Giant. And we and we always knew that we wanted the dynamic between Will and the robot to be the heart of the show. And that the, the boy and his robot, that kind of Iron Giant quality, was very much intentional. So so we I would say the toughest decision we made uh, of all the very tough decisions was, what's that robot going to look like? And I credit, you know, Zach and Neil Marshall coming up with, and we came up with some, I mean, there were outrageous notions of what it was going to look like. And, but it had to be kind of humanoid, because audiences relate, you know, you're not going to relate to it otherwise. So it had to kind of have a physical shape. You know, we didn't want it to look, you know, like Iron Man or a Marvel character. Um, you know, you, we tried to make it original. And we also wanted it to evoke the original robot by having the bubble face, uh, the bubble head, uh, effectively. And I, we were scared, I have to say, uh, which is why we were so closeted about what everything was going to look like. We didn't want people to see the ship or the smith or the robot because, you know, I'm again, I'm a fan of the original show. And even though the fan base you know has aged over time and passed away over time you know you wanted them to love the show too i mean i wanted this lost space to be again the show that when alan would have done if he would had the opportunity so but we kept it quiet because we just didn't want the hate mail that we feared we might get and i have to say one of the things that we're all really happy about is how the robot has been so embraced and how and i have to say um you know the the way the robot is portrayed, the way he's, he's he interacts with um, uh, uh, Will Robinson, um, played by Max Jenkins, who does a brilliant job. All the actors do a brilliant job, but Max, who has a really tough job for a twelve you know 10, 12 year old kid, um, to interact with something that. Um, no surprise, is either a guy in the suit or something entirely that you can't see. Because sometimes the robot is CGI, sometimes it's an enhanced version of a guy in a suit. And Max has to make that real. And and the guy in the robot, Brian Steele, has to make that real and they do an extraordinary job.
0: And as a whole, the whole cast really does pull it off, and we've had uh, Toby Stevens on the show, although he doesn't know it. We had him on, I interviewed him at a comic book convention a little ways back when he was with Black Sales. He's terrific, and, and Molly Parker is uh, is great as his wife. And, and,
2: by, and by the way, just uh, I yeah. had dinner with the cast up in Vancouver a couple of weeks ago, and uh, Toby sat there, and I was talking to Molly, and he goes, you do ancient aliens, and I said, <laughs> "Yeah." He goes, I love that show, <laughs> and and he said, "Oh my god, that's my favorite show." He says, uh, I, "You know, I saw the one last week about Vikings," and <laughs> and then and, and I just thought, "Wow, that's really cool." No, I mean <laughs> we we do AlienCon now. There's a convention uh-huh. now based on the Alien. And Max was there with Bill Mooney and Marta Kristen, and Mima Sundwall was there, the girl who plays Penny, and and that was great. In fact, before the premiere. At the Cinerama Dome in Hollywood we, There was Netflix through like a premiere Like a red carpet premiere And it was actually a black carpet But anyway, <laughs> the, um, but I had dinner The night before, John and I hosted a dinner With those cast members Who could come, and Parker came And Ignacio came And Max and Nina. Taylor couldn't come, and Molly and, and Toby Couldn't come, but we had Marta, Kristen, and Mark Goddard And Angela, and, and Billy and of course, Billy had met the cast because he was up there doing his part. But the other three original cast members got to meet, you know, their new counterparts for the first time, and it was an extraordinary evening. And it was a real love fest. And to watch, uh, you know, Angela Cartwright interact with Mina, who plays Penny now, and and Ignacio and Mark Goddard were just like they were brothers. And it was just so heartwarming because. You know, the original characters, I mean, they carried the torch for a long time. Right. And if you don't already know this, you know, there was talk originally of what's the voice of the robot going to be, and could, could we use Dick Tufeld's voice for the robot? And I suggested that they use Max's voice, uh, that Max Jenkins be processed huh. to be the robot, because the robot would only have heard a human voice for the first time spoken by Will Robinson, right. and that is the voice. Wow. Uh, that, That's cool. that danger, Will Robinson, is
1: Max Janko.
0: Oh, wow. Oh, we're going to call that a scoop for everything old is new again. We'll lead with that. Uh,
1: But but that that is very interesting. But that dinner you had, I mean, that that the fanboy in you must have been... I mean, it it must have been your dream, right? The old cast, the new cast, you had something to do with all this.
2: One of the things funny, I met Bill Blum in 1989 and I had just started working at 20th Century Fox. Bill came to my office and it was a very tentative meeting. I really just wanted some excuse to kind of meet with him because I was such a Lost Space fan. And he came on the lot, which was like... his his alma mater and he came to my office and i often say to bill if bill hadn't been such a great guy none of this would have happened because i wouldn't have had the i wouldn't have wanted to do it Hmm. and he came into my office and he sees on my desk my mom had given me a little um a little dish with pez dispensers in it (laughs) and bill says you have pez i said yes and he said you have soft head penguin and batman and Joker, Pez? And I said, yes. He goes, oh, I've never seen those. And I gave them to him. Uh Well, we became very, very close friends ever since. And it was through Bill that I got to meet Jonathan and the rest of the cast and work with them and do reunions. And we used to have lunch at 20th Century Fox about twice to three times a year. We'd have dinner on occasion. We had regular dinners with Jonathan and his wife, Gertrude. And there was a family feeling that I... You know, I got to know the people from Batman and the Munsters and every TV show I ever loved as a kid. But there was an extraordinary bond with the Lost in Space people, and I think primarily because it was these people were playing a family. And and it was really great when Bill went up to Vancouver to do his part as the, quote, real Dr. Smith. And he went out to dinner with the cast, and, uh, and he said to them, you guys don't understand, but you're going to be bonded together as a family for the rest of your lives. And it's great because I have to say, even going up there for dinner a couple of weeks ago, it's absolutely true. I mean, you, it's hard to play the Robinson, and even Dr. Smith and Don West, and not feel part of that family. It is an extraordinary thing, and so it's nice that that tradition continues.
0: And it's an extraordinary show, Lost in Space, on Netflix. you got to see it. So
2: these are like 10-hour movies that produced almost like Star Wars movies or James Bond movies, meaning they're hugely ambitious, they're very expensive, but they become events. And right. they, and when they, so so some people have said, you know, why do we have to wait so long? And it's like, well, you had to wait that long for Star Wars, you had to wait that long for Star Trek, you had to wait that long for James Bond. I mean, this is, and this is ten hours, not two. Right. So you know, Zach has an enormously difficult job. You know, the, the writers do a great job. I mean, everybody works really, really hard. But the effects and everything are very challenging. So, yeah, I mean, I could imagine maybe. I mean, they do a lot of little behind-the-scenes interstitials.
0: Well, listen, I'll tell you, we've had a great time. We're talking with someone who has touched their childhood dream: executive producer of *Lost in Space*, *Ancient Aliens*, *Curse of Oak Island*, and more. Kevin Burns, uh, thank you very much for your time. We're we've just elated that we've had the opportunity to speak with you, and look forward to possibly down the line speaking uh, more and other you know, adventures that you that you go down. Well, anytime. I look forward to it. We'll be back next week to talk all things entertainment, pop culture, talk show. Douglas Viviani, David Cohen on Everything Old is New Again. Been talking to Kevin Burns, had a great time. Here's a theme to the new Lost in Space. See you next week.